you are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, Ernest Hemingway's writing as we do a wonder on The Sun Also Rises. I'm going to let you know if this is the first time you've ever listened to this podcast and Ernest Hemingway is your favorite author, you're not going to want to listen because I'm about to trash talk this motherfucker. So last week I finished reading Green Skin on the podcast and I decided to do something different to kind of cleanse my palate and also give variety to the podcast. I have a lot of different ideas for different things to do this year. Something I did in 2022 early on because of my oral exam was read one-offs. So instead of doing four episodes on one novel, I would cram everything into one episode. And it was a way for me to review the material and also talk about it and just kind of get it in my head and provide a little entertainment for you listeners. And I don't like Hemingway, but as I said in previous episodes, I don't buy into what I consider myths about Hemingway. One of them being that he was a very simple writer who relied on simple words, simple sentences. Because within the first page of The Sun Also Rises, that's not his style at all. But we'll get into that when I start reading. If you would like to support the podcast, you may do so by buying my books on Amazon. Just search for Patrick Attaway. I have poetry, short story collections, although (laughs) that's not true anymore because I'm about to release a new short story collection and only have one available for purchase. So you have to wait a little bit. My new uh, short story book comes out pretty soon in May, and it's under the title Angry Bluebird. But I also have novels. I have five novels on Amazon right now. And if you're not sure if you want to read them or not, I have plenty of episodes on this podcast reading and covering them. And you will soon grow tired of them, I'm sure. If reading isn't your thing, if you prefer listening to things, I also have music that is available on Spotify or wherever you stream music. Just search for Lurking Vowel. Lurking as in lurking around the corner and vowel as an A-E-I-O-U. I also have a TikTok channel where I post pictures, images with my music underneath it. And that's, you know, fairly popular for what it is. I only ha- I have less than 200 followers like right now, but I'm not trying to gain followers by following a bunch of people like the early days of Twitter, you know. So to give you a little bit of background on my history with Hemingway... He was one of those authors that, of course, got brought up a lot. And since I was an English major, interestingly enough, none of the professors assigned any of his work. And part of that was because my particular English program was very feminist, I will say that. I even took courses with men who had a very feminist bent. And so everything that I read, even you know, classic stuff by the old dead white guys of the literary canon. We read a lot of that with a a feminist lens. And this was 2010 through 2015. It's one thing to go to college and not read writers like Bukowski. That's obvious. But Hemingway is very revered. So you would think, oh, Well, obviously, if you're going to take an American literature course, you're going to read Hemingway. But no, he was actually not very well respected in 
the academic community, at least in these parts. And I remember reading a book called Writing Fiction in one of my first creative writing courses. And the author, who was a woman, took an example from something that Hemingway wrote and just critiqued it and said it was not what you're supposed to do. So I was in the classroom and I said, you know, it's kind of audacious to for her to attack Hemingway the way that she does. And I wasn't a Hemingway fan by any means, but it's just very interesting that when someone is writing a textbook for writing for college students, that they would specifically hone in on a well-renowned writer and say, no, this is not what works. This is not what you're supposed to do. This is actually awful. And my creative writing professor's response was, have you ever read the way that Hemingway writes women? And within the context of the textbook, it had nothing to do with how he wrote women. It was just a random sample from something he'd written. And around that time, I started reading his short stories And I also read The Sun Also Rises. I think I started A Farewell to Arms. And his writing style never struck me as being as simplistic as people led me on to believe. And I got into some arguments around the time about it with people who said that he was responding to the Romantic era of writing. The late 19th century writers, particularly the British lit writers and some of the American writers, like, not Twain, stuff like Emerson and Thoreau, Irving, shit like that. But you want to know what's really interesting, even in grad school when I took American Lent courses, is that we never read those authors. In fact, when I took my oral exam, my American Lit professor said, maybe we should include some of that stuff from the 1800s. But then he he realized, well, you never learned anything about any of that in undergrad or grad school, so why would we forget that? The only author, I think the only American author from that era, aside from Twain, that I ever read in college was Poe. You know, we never read Leaves of Grass in a, in a class. I actually read that in high school by myself. And let me tell you, people, as someone who taught very briefly and has been through the gamut when it comes to English courses. The tide is shifting dramatically in education. So there may never be a day where Hemingway is widely discussed in academia the way that he may have when I was in college because the role of the BA, the liberal arts and English major in colleges in universities that's changing and there was that new york times article about the death of the english major which made a lot of english professors mad by the way uh, one of them is a friend of mine so i see his post on facebook and linkedin now but realistically yes the nature of college universities higher education it's changing And one of the reasons why I resigned is because the dean of my school expected me to participate in this automated online course instead of actually teaching a course that was based on literature and writing. 
they wanted the students to just read a PDF textbook and take t tests and quizzes. So it wouldn't have really been a writing course. And it certainly wouldn't have been based on any sort of literature, because if you're going to be writing about something, what the fuck are you going to be writing about in an English course except for literature? This is not like junior high school where you're writing about your summer vacation. It sounds like I'm kind of sympathetic to Hemingway. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not, but maybe that opinion will change. It's been a long time since I've read this book. It's been a long time since I've read anything by Hemingway, so we'll see. But I'm going to start at chapter one, and we're just going to see where this takes us. Robert Cohen was once middleweight boxing champion of Princeton. Do not think that I am very impressed by that as a boxing title, but it meant a lot to Cohen. He cared nothing for boxing. In fact, he disliked it, but he learned it painfully and thoroughly to counteract the feeling of inferiority and shyness he had felt on being treated as a Jew at Princeton. There was a certain inner comfort in knowing he could knock down anybody who was snooty to him, although being very shy and a thoroughly nice boy, he never fought except in the gym. He was a Spider Kelly star. He was Spider Kelly's star pupil, excuse me. Spider Kelly taught all his young gentlemen to box like featherweights, no matter whether they weighed 100 or 5 or 205 pounds. But it seemed to fit Cohen. He was really very fast. He was so good that Spider promptly overmatched him and got his nose permanently flattened. This increased Cohen's distaste for boxing, but it gave him a certain satisfaction of some sort, and it certainly improved his nose. In his last year at Princeton, he read too much and took to wearing spectacles. I never met anyone of his class who remembered him. They did not even remember that he was a middleweight boxing champion. So this is the first page. And the first sentence is technically a simple sentence, sure. But then we have, do not think that I'm very impressed by that as a boxing title, comma, but it meant a lot to Cohen. He cared nothing for boxing, comma. In fact, he disliked it, comma, but he learned it painfully and thoroughly to counteract the feeling of inferiority and shyness he had felt on being treated as a Jew at Princeton, period. So these are not simple sentences. There are two here that I would consider kind of Bukowski-esque, but it seemed to fit Cohen, period. He was really very fast, period. What's interesting is that a creative writing professor would say, don't write, he was really very fast. Just write, he was fast. Because really very is kind of gilding the lily and the minds of academic creative writing. So what we're getting in terms of characterization, protagonist versus secondary character, etc. The narrator is saying I. So that means that the narrator is a character in the story somehow, and he knows Robert Cohen. For those of you who have already read this, this may seem obvious to you, but I have an audience beside you, so shut the fuck up. I mistrust all frank and simple people, especially when their stories hold together, and I always had a suspicion that perhaps Robert Cohen had never been middleweight boxing champion, and that perhaps a horse had stepped on his face, or maybe his mother had been frightened or seen something, or that he had maybe bumped into something as a young child, but 
I finally had somebody verify the story from Spider Kelly. That was a very long sentence, people. Spider Kelly not only remembered Cohen, he had often wondered what had become of him. So I will say this. A lot of the language that he's using in terms of the words that he's using is not very flowery, but his sentence structure and the points that he's making, it's not as simplistic as people would lead you believe. Robert Cohen was a member, through his father, of one of the richest Jewish families in New York and through his mother of one of the oldest. At the military school where he prepped for Princeton and played a very good end on the football team, no one had made him feel race conscious. No one had ever made him feel like he was a Jew, and hence any different from anybody else until he went to Princeton. He was a nice boy, friendly boy, and very shy, and it made him bitter. He took it out in boxing, and he came out of Princeton with painful self-consciousness and the flattened nose, and was married to the first girl he was nice to him, who was nice to him. He was married five years, had three children, lost most of the $50,000 his father left him, the balance of the estate having gone to his mother, hardened into rather unattractive mold, under domestic unhappiness with a rich wife, and just when he had made up his mind to leave his wife, she left him and went off with a miniature painter. As he had been thinking for months about leaving his wife and had not done it because it would be too cruel to deprive her of himself, her departure was a very healthful shock. So, we don't know who the, who the real protagonist of this is. Is it Cohen? Is it the narrator? And when you write in this fashion, this is something that Kurt Vonnegut did in Slaughterhouse-Five. It's something that I have also done. If you've read, ever read my short story, Jesse, I read it on the podcast, and it will be republished in my upcoming new book, Angry Bluebird. It's a, a tactic of showing the protagonist either obsession with a character. It's a way of writing a different protagonist that isn't the narrator. It's a method that works, but you have to, to treat it a certain way. Because my issue with kind of first-person narration that's actually third-person narration is that I don't like third-person narration. I want to know who the, the true protagonist is when I pick up a book, and I also want to know what's going on in their head. That's the kind of writing I prefer. The divorce was arranged, and Robert Cohen went out to the coast. In California, he fell among literary people, and as he still has had a little of the 50000 left. In a short time, he was backing a review of the arts. The review commenced publication in Carmel, California, and finished in Provincetown, Town, Massachusetts. <laughs> I can't pronounce that state, for God's sakes. By the time Cohen, who had been regarded purely as an angel, and whose name had appeared on the editorial page merely as a member of the advisory board, had become the sole editor. It was his money, and he discovered he liked the authority of editing. He was sorry when the magazine became too expensive and he had to give it up. By, the, by that time, though, he had other things to worry about. He had been taken in hand by a lady 
who hoped to rise with the magazine. She was very forceful, and Cohen had never had a chance of not being taken in hand. Also, he was sure that he loved her. When this lady saw that the magazine was not going to rise, she became a little disgusted with Cohen and decided that she might as well get what there was to get while there was still something available. So she urged that they go to Europe where Cohen could write. They came to Europe where the lady had been educated and stayed three years. During those three years, the first spent in travel, the last two in Paris, Cohen had two friends, Braddock's and myself. Braddock's was his literary friend. I was his tennis friend. Oh, there's nothing like a chummy tennis friend to get you through the hard times. The lady who had him, her name was Frances, found toward the end of the second year that her looks were going and her... (laughs) Jesus. Her attitude towards Robert changed from one of careless possession and exploitation to the absolute determination that he should marry her. Okay, so... We've introduced this this woman into the story, not by giving her name. All he does is say he had been taken in hand by a lady. And he gives this whole paragraph about their relationship. And then in the next paragraph, finally says, oh, her name's Frances. And found toward the end of the second year that her looks were going and her attitude toward Robert changed. Okay, you know, I can't help but be a little cynical here. Maybe it's not what I'm thinking, but it certainly seems like Francis from Hemingway or, you know, the protagonist's perspective is kind of a bitch. And therefore, she doesn't deserve to have her name in the first paragraph she's mentioned in. And why not mention her looks? Because that is why... You know, that's that's her worth as a woman from this character's perspective. Once her looks are gone, well, what? She might as well be an old maid, you know? What I will say, so far, aside from Francis, is that if I'd picked this book up in a bookstore and flipped through the first couple of pages to decide whether or not I was going to buy it, I wouldn't buy it. Because my preference is, other than first-person narrative, is that... We get somewhere with the character, okay? When I wrote Greenskin, and I'm not saying that I'm a great writer, so just don't even think that. But when I wrote the first scene, the first scene starts on the first page. There's no grand introduction. You see the character, the protagonist, interact with someone else. You get a gist of what the novel is actually going to be about. And away you go. The first chapter is like a guide to everything that's going to happen. But so far, we're getting a character study and honestly not a very good one. Now, some of you may think that I'm not qualified to say this or that my opinion is wrong. And again, no one's holding a gun to your head. You don't have to listen to this. So... I want to skip, but we'll just keep going. He was fairly happy, except that, like many people living in Europe, he would rather have been in America 
and had discovered writing, the dumbass. He wrote a novel, and it was not really such a bad novel as the critics later called it, although it was a very poor novel. He read many books, played bridge, played tennis, and boxed at a local gymnasium. I first became aware of this lady's attitude toward him one night after the three of us had dined together. We had dined at La Avenue's and afterward went to the Café de Versailles for coffee. We had several finets after the coffee, and I said, I must be going. Great. Just great. I love this scene. There's no dialogue whatsoever. Cohen had been talking about the two of us going off somewhere on a weekend trip. He wanted to get out of the town and get in a good walk. I suggested we fly to Strasbourg and walk up to St. Odile, uh, again, pronunciation, uh, or somewhere other than Alsace. I know a girl in Strasbourg who can show us the town, I said. Somebody kicked me under the table. I thought it was accidental and went on. She's been there two years and knows everything there is to know about the town. She's a swell girl. I was kicked again under the candle, under, whoa, Patrick, under the table and looking saw Frances, Robert's lady, her chin lifting and her face hardening. Hell, I said, why go to Strasbourg? We could go up to Bruges or the Ardennes. Cohen looked relieved. I was not kicked again. I said goodnight and went out. Cohen said he wanted to buy a paper and would walk to the corner with me. For God's sakes, he said, why did you say that about the girl in Strasbourg for? Didn't you see Francis? No, why should I? If I know an American girl that lives in Strasbourg, what the hell is it to Francis? It doesn't make any difference. Any girl, I couldn't go. That would be all. Don't be silly. You don't know Francis. Any girl at all. Didn't you see the way she looked? Oh well, I said. Let's go to Senilis. Don't get sore. I'm not sore. Sinless is a good place, and we can stay at the Grand Surf and take a hike in the woods and come home. Good. That will be fine. Well, I'll see you tomorrow at the courts, I said. Good night, Jake, he said, and started back to the cafe. You forgot to get your paper, I said. That's so. He walked up to me with the kiosk at the corner. You're not sore, are you, Jake? He turned with the paper in his hand. No, why would I be? See you at tennis, he said. I watched him walk back to the cafe holding his paper. I rather liked him and evidently she led him quite a life. Oh lord, that dialogue was boring as shit. That winter, Robert Cohen went over to America with his novel and it was accepted by a fairly good publisher. His going made an awful row, I heard, and... I think that was where Francis lost him because several women were nice to him in New York and when he came back he was quite changed. He was more enthusiastic about America than ever and he was not so simple and he was not so nice. The publishers had praised his novel pretty highly and it went rather to his head. Then several women had put themselves out to be nice to him and his horizons had all shifted. For four years his horizon had been absolutely limited to his wife. For three years, or almost three years, he had never seen beyond Francis. I'm sure that he had never been in love in his life. Okay, so the thing about mentioning women. There's nothing wrong about mentioning women, 
But contextually, part of me gets it. Okay, you're in a bad, toxic relationship where someone's being controlling. And then you go over to another place and you see that, hey, people of the opposite sex are not so bad. So when you come back to your relationship, you're like, you know what? This sucks. I want something new. La-di-da. But we've already had this, you know, characterization of Francis as the shrewest bitch. He had married on the rebound from the rotten time he had in college. And Francis took him on the rebound from his discovery that he had not been everything to his first wife. He was not in love, yet he realized that he was an attractive quantity to women, whatever that means. The fact of a woman caring for him and wanting to live with him was not simply a divine miracle. This changed him so that he was not so pleasant to have around. Also, playing for higher stakes than he could afford in some rather steep bridge games with his New York connections, he had held cards and won several hundred dollars. It made him rather vain of his bridge game, and he talked several times of how a man could always make a living at bridge if he were ever forced to. Then there was another thing. He had been reading W.H. Hudson. That sounds like an innocent occupation, but... Cohen had read and reread The Purple Land. The Purple Land is a very sinister book if read too late in life. It recounts splendid imaginary amorous adventures of a perfect English gentleman and an intensely romantic land, the scenery of which is very well described. Okay, we're going to reread the sentence. It recounts splendid imaginary amorous adventures of a perfect English gentleman in an intensely romantic land, comma, the scenery of which is very well described. This reads like an essay that one of my English 1101 students would turn in where they put in all these different words trying to fill up the, the word minimum or the page minimum. It needs editing and I know you may see the irony in me talking about someone else being edited but being wordy and using a lot of adjectives or adverbs that's not my problem so you you may also think well this is a different time period la di da well correct I am a reader in 2023, and so my perspective, my context for everything, comes from my period of time. That's how it works. For a man who, for a man to take it at 34 as a guidebook to what life holds is about as safe as, as it would be for a man of the same age to enter Wall Street direct from a French convent, equipped with a complete set of the more practical algebra books. Cohen, I believe, took every word of the Purple Land as literally as though it had been an R.G. Dunn report. You understand me. He made some reservations. But on the whole, the book to him was sound. It was all that was needed to set him off. I did not realize the extent of which it had set him off until one day he came into my office. Hello, Robert, I said. Did you come in to cheer me up? Would you like to go to South America, Jake? He asked. No. Why not? I don't know. I never wanted to go. Too expensive. You can see all the South Americans you want in Paris anyway. They're not real South Americans. They look awfully real to me. 
I had a boat train to catch with a week's mail stories and only half of them written. Do you know any dirt? I asked. No. None of your exalted connections getting divorces? No. Listen, Jake, if I handled both of our expenses, would you go to South America with me? Why me? You can talk Spanish, and it would be more fun with two of us. No, I said. I like this town, and I go to Spain in the summertime. All of my life, I've wanted to go on a trip like that, Cohen said. He sat down. I'll be too old before I can ever do it. Don't be a fool, I said. You can go anywhere you want. You've got plenty of money. I know, but I can't get started. Cheer up, I said. All the countries look just like the moving pictures. But I felt sorry for him. He had it badly. I can't stand to think my life is going so fast that I'm not really living it. Nobody ever lives their life all the way up except bullfighters. I'm not interested in bullfighters. That's an abnormal life. I want to go back in the country in South America. We could have a great trip. Did you ever think about going to British East Africa to shoot? No, I wouldn't like that. I'd go there with you. No, that doesn't interest me. That's because you've never read a book about it. Go on and read a book all full of love affairs with the beautiful shiny black princesses. Oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Okay, so other than this not being very good dialogue, again, this is all my opinion, you fucking twats. The thing is, is that the way that Hemingway is writing this, he's making Cohen out to be a fool, of course. The protagonist is the smart one in the situation, allegedly. That's the way that Hemingway is setting this up. And then he says something like, the beautiful, shiny, black princesses. And it, it, it doesn't really sit well with me. But maybe I'm taking it out of context. I want to go to South America. He had a hard, Jewish, stubborn streak. Okay! Okay! You know, it seems like Hemingway didn't really like anybody. Come on downstairs and have a drink. Aren't you working? No, I said. We went down the stairs to the cafe on the ground floor. I discovered that this was the best way to get rid of friends. Once you had a drink, all you had to say was, well, I've got to get back and get off some cables. And it was done. It is very important to discover graceful exits like this in the newspaper business where it is such an important part of the ethics that you should never seem to be working. Anyway, we went downstairs to the bar and had a whiskey and soda. Cohen looked at the bottles and bands around the wall. This is a good place, he said. There's a lot of liquor, I agreed. Just wonderfully enlightening dialogue. Listen, Jake, he leaned forward on the bar. Don't you ever get the feeling that all of your life is going by and you're not taking advantage of it? Do you realize that you've lived nearly half the time you have to live already? Yeah, every once in a while. Do you know that in about 35 years more, we'll be dead? What the hell, Robert, I said. What the hell? I'm serious. It's one thing I don't worry about, I said. You ought to. I've had plenty to worry about one time or other. I'm through worrying. 
Well, I want to go to South America. Listen, Robert, going to another country doesn't make any difference. I've tried all that. You can't get away from yourself by moving from one place to another. There's nothing to that. That's true. But you've never been to South America. South America, hell, if you went there the way you feel now, it'd be exactly the same. This is a good town. Why don't you start living your life in Paris? I'm sick of Paris. I'm sick of the quarter. Stay away from the quarter. Cruise around by yourself and see what happens to you. Nothing happens to me. I walked alone all one night and nothing happens except a bicycle cop stopped me and asked to see my papers. Wasn't the town nice at night? I don't care for Paris. So there you were. I was sorry for him. But it was not a thing you could do anything about because right away you ran up against two stubbornnesses. South America could fix it and he did not like Paris. He got the first idea out of a book and I suppose the second came out of a book too. Well, I said, I've got to go upstairs and get off some cables. Do you really have to go? Yeah, I've got to get those cables off. Do you mind if I come up and sit around the office? No, come on up. Okay. Other than the fact that this dialogue is incredibly boring and this argument isn't going anywhere, it's ironic that Hemingway's protagonist, who I've yet to learn the name of, or wait, did we learn it? Let me see. Let me go back. Jake. Yeah, Jake. Okay. Sorry, his name is Jake. So Jake is making fun of, not directly, but he's mocking Robert for having read a book and got an idea to go someplace when so many people have read this book or read anything by Hemingway and said, I want to go see the bullfighters. I want to go to Spain. (laughs) It's really ironic (laughs) because... Most I, I was just talking to Zev Good about something th- that had to do with writers like Hemingway and Faulkner and, you know, later on, Cormac McCarthy. The other night on my Instagram stories, I went on this rant partially because of the egos of writers, okay? And there's always this type who loves Hemingway, who loves Faulkner, who loves McCarthy. He, they think of those writers as the height of writing. And it's this weird, like semi ironic masculinity where they think of this type of writing as being, you know, kind of rebellious enough to break from norms, but also in a way setting a new norm because Faulkner is still read in academia. Cormac McCarthy is very well respected by academics, but it's not often that you read books by McCarthy in a college setting. And I'm not saying that the quality of literature should be judged by academia. I just come from the world of academia. And a lot of these types are the types who choose to major in English. And then they end up in the grad program. And then they're like me where they're wondering, well, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> so for context, this is what I said to Zev. I don't think of those three authors as hyper-masculine so much as their collective male audience. 
the dudes who like all three and make being a male author or English major their entire personality. David Bottoms, for example. Yeah, I fucking hate David Bottoms. He's a great example of this. If you haven't read Shooting Bibs, oh, fuck, Shooting Rats at the Bib County Dump, that is a tremendous example of everything that I hate about English majors, especially the men who choose to to be an English major and make it their entire personality. I had to endure Absalon Absalon for a grad class. The novel retelling the same story plus rereading it in class was worse than if every orgasm of my life was suddenly interrupted by my entire family walking into the, my bedroom before the moment of climax. And uh, yeah, Zev said, it does seem all of writer Twitter do bros fingering their own buttholes over certain prescribed male authors like Norman Mailer, Faulkner, Steinbeck, and Joyce. Ulysses is literal shit. Which is funny because I remember when Zev read Ulysses and I seem to remember him liking it, but it's funny, Bukowski didn't like any of these authors. <laughs> um, and I said, yeah, I suppose that they have more variety than the dudes who make infinite jests their entire personality. On to chapter three. It was a warm spring night and I sat at a table on the terrace of the... Napoleon after Robert had gone watching it get dark and the electric signs come on and the red and green stop and go traffic signal and the crowd going by and the horse caps clippy clopping along the edge of the solid taxi traffic and the poles going by singing and singly and in pairs looking for the evening meal yes Ernest Hemingway used horse cabs clippy clopping. <laughs> Jesus. Again, I can just sense my creative writing professors and their red pen. I watched a good looking girl walk past the table and watched her go up the street and lost sight of her and watched another and saw the first one coming back again. She went by once more and I caught her eye and she came over and sat at the table. The waiter came up. What sense does this make? Jesus, why, why would a woman just be aimlessly wandering around this cafe and then come back and sit down with this fucker who's staring at her? Well, what will you drink, I asked. Perno. That's not good for little girls. Little girl yourself. Dietz garçon en pernon. A pernon for me, too. What's the matter, she asked, going on a party? Sure, aren't you? I don't know. We never know in this town. Don't you like Paris? No. Why don't you go somewhere else? Isn't anywhere else? You're happy, all right. Happy hell. I hate reading this! This is awful! Jesus, this is awful! I, I, I need to reread this last portion. So, why don't you go somewhere else? Isn't anywhere else. You're happy, all right. Happy hell. Um, this does not seem like a real conversation. This sounds like someone who has never heard someone speak trying to write a conversation. Bernal is greenish imitation absinthe. When you add water, it turns milky. It tastes like licorice and has a good uplift, but it drops you just as far. We sat and drank it, and the girl looked sullen. 
Oh boy. Well, I said, are you going to buy me a dinner? She grinned and I saw why she made a point of not laughing. With her mouth closed, she was a rather pretty girl. I paid for the saucer and we walked out to the street. Wait a minute. With her mouth closed, she was a rather pretty girl. Does that mean that she has bad teeth or does that mean that she's better when she's not talking? I held a horse cab and the driver pulled up to the curb, settled back in the slow, smoothly rolling fierce. We moved up the Avenue de la Opera, past the locked doors of the shops, their windows lighted, the avenue broad and shiny and almost deserted. Oh, God. This description is irritating me. The cab passed the New York Herald Bureau with the windows full of clocks. What are all the clocks for, she asked. They show the hour all over America. Don't kid me. What the fuck? When we turned off the avenue of the Rue de Pyramide, through the traffic of Rue de Rivoli, and through a dark gate into the... I might even pronounce that. She can, She cuddled against me and I put my arm around her. She looked up to be kissed. She touched me with one hand and I put her hand away. Never mind. What's the matter? You sick? Yes. Everybody's sick. I'm sick too. I'm about to be sick myself. We came out of the place and into the light and crossed the scene and turned up the Rue de Saint-Père. Okay, so the word that I'm not going to say is T-U-I-L-E-R-I-E. So that could be Tuileries. You oughtn't to drink Pernod if you're sick. You neither. Great dialogue. It doesn't make any difference with me. It doesn't make any difference with a woman. Uh, okay. Okay, Hemingway. Jesus. What are you called? Georgette. How are you called? Jacob. That's a Flemish name. American, too. You're not a Flamand? No. American. Good. I detest Flamands. Okay. Oh, boy. So, I will say... In defense of my favorite misogynistic writer, Bukowski, uh, I've never read him write anything like this. Even in the novel Women, or he's just going around and fucking women, getting fights with them, it, it, I've never read him say something that's akin to this, or the way that this novel is proceeding. And... It's not that I don't believe that Bukowski may or may not have had a lesser opinion of women. Now, if you talk to women who knew him, like Linda King or his wife, Linda Lee Bukowski, they would say, no, I don't believe he was misogynistic. I don't believe he hated women. But from, you know, the sake of, you know, uh, a woman who didn't know him's perspective... I'm getting like a kind of a, a creepier sense from Hemingway. I don't know how to really explain it that well. It might just be because I don't like Hemingway and I'm looking for reasons to not like him. I acknowledge that. Okay. Right now I'm staring at the old price tag on the back. I think this is from Borders or maybe Books a Million, but it has the date of when it was scanned into the the store and it's February 17th 2011 this is an old book 
Could you imagine if I actually thought that this was a really old book and therefore should be worth money, so I took it to the local bookstore that is also a book collector's um, appraisal place? That's a, a sentence. That's a Hemingway sentence right there. A, a book collector's appraisal place. Yes. And I said, this book is from 2011. It should be worth $500. I know that that's a really lame, dumb joke, but I would rather be telling lame, dumb jokes than reading this trash. We got 24 pages in before I wanted to put the book down. So that's progress. I felt like going to a random passage in the middle, and maybe I'll revisit Hemingway in the future by reading one of his short stories on the podcast. But I can't do this book, people. This is not good. So I'm going to talk about something else for the remainder of the podcast. I don't want to read this. It's not because of the, the sexism. It's not because of my dislike of Hemingway. It's because the writing's not very good from my perspective again. I keep having to say that because I know, oh, that's your opinion, and your opinion's misguided and stupid. Yeah, I don't give a shit what you think. I am working on something for the podcast. It may be one episode, it may be a series, but I will say I am going to compose a soundtrack for it because I don't want it to just be me reading. So it's going to be something similar to the Nero series. It may just be one episode. I'm actually leaning towards making it just one episode because when I serialized Nero, uh, boy, um, it, it didn't really pan out the way I thought it would. And I loved doing that. I loved writing that. I loved working on the soundtrack for it. I loved reading it. I had a lot of fun doing that series. But uh, boy, people did not gather towards it like flies in a fucking field of shit. I have had a weekend, for sure. So, Friday, my wife picked up my niece, who's now seven, and I took her to the playground yesterday and injured myself. Not terribly, but uh, I did something that she dared me to do because I wanted to, you know, entertain my niece, and uh, almost landed on my back, and instead just kind of I didn't even pull a muscle on my arm, but it sure as hell hurt after I held on to what I was hanging on to. And then we went to Walmart, which overstimulated me. And then when I came back, it was, I, I ended up leaving the house again, like three more times that day. I fucking hated it. And then today we had to drive her back all the way to Alabama and now it's four o'clock and I've barely spent any time home. I just read this terrible fucking book. So yay. I'm just overstimulated in general. I slept until past 1030 this morning, which I don't normally do. And I didn't go to bed late last night. In fact, I went to bed when I normally do, like right around 11 to 12 o'clock. And I still ended up waking up. Uh, past 10.30. So, I'm going to have a hell of a time getting to sleep tonight. Next week, we're going to do something different. I don't even think I'm going to read next week. I think what I'm going to do is, I've been thinking about doing 
like a top 10 or top five episode where I go through all my top fives or top tens of shit, like albums, books, and just talk about them in general. I think that is something that I am due considering we're close to 200 episodes at one point. In the future, I want to do a retrospective episode or series on Surviving New America because there's a lot in that book I haven't covered on this podcast, and I think it deserves it, and I think I deserve a refresher on it because there's a lot that I don't even remember from it, honestly. And what I'm writing right now has nothing to do with Surviving New America. It, it has nothing to do with Sprague like I thought it would. It's a another older character that I think deserves a little bit more. Even though he got his own novel, <laughs> I should tell you who I'm writing about, and it's not Birch. And I kind of lied. I am technically thinking about doing a series, but it's a series that's in, relate, in relation to what happens in the novel Birch. And not that it involves Birch, but, you know, I have kind of tripped upon an interesting concept with that book to where I can explore other characters in the series in that same way. So that's essentially what I'm doing. And I, I want to do it with more than one character too. So that'll be fun for me. Anyway, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading, happy writing. Uh, if you hate me after this episode, stop listening, you dumbass. <laughs> <laughs>